Vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccination stances often make the headlines and are topics on the minds of many healthcare workers. It is a current hot topic. What is less well known, however, is that even decades ago, in the 1960s and well into the 1990s, vaccine rates were less than ideal. Many systemic problems came into play, and it was about more than just parents refusing vaccines for their children. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with two authors of a Medical Humanities article published in CMAJ. Heather McDougall is an Associate Professor at the University of Waterloo, where she specializes in the history of public health and health policy. Laurence Monet is a Professor of History and Director of the Centre for East Asian Studies at the Université de Montréal. She is also a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. In their article, Professors McDougall and Monet discuss perceptions, apathy, and opposition around vaccination. Specifically, they take a look at the factors underpinning low uptake of measles vaccine in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. They are joining me today to chat about their article. I've reached Professor McDougall in Waterloo, Ontario, and Professor Manet in Montreal, Quebec. Welcome both. Hello, and thank you for the opportunity. Yes, hello. Measles rates are still high in some parts of the world. Just this week, the WHO released a warning that measles rates are soaring in Europe. Our current vaccine for measles is actually a combination vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella, or MMR vaccine. Professor McDougall, how effective is it? The MMR vaccine and its effectiveness have been to a degree in question virtually since the point at which the um, vaccine was introduced in 1972. Um, at that point, clinicians began to actually take a closer look at it. And Dr. Crawford Anglin of the Sick Kids conducted a study on, of pediatric practices in Toronto in which um, basically they came to the conclusion that the at that point, and this study was published in 1974, the mumps component was 98% effective. The measles component was 95.6% effective, but the rubella component was only, I think, around 85% effective. So in other words, even at the beginning of its introduction into practice, the MMR vaccine has been um, questioned, given that three different viral components are put together in one vaccine. But for most of the 1970s and the early 1980s, it was assumed that one immunization with this would confer lifelong immunity. However, toward the, through the 1980s and the early 1990s, a variety of disease outbreaks led to significant questioning amongst researchers and the Americans to recommend a second dose in 1989. Canada followed suit in creating a second required dose in the mid-1990s. And part of the reason for this was that as the researchers were 
watching the implementation of the vaccine, they come to the conclusion that roughly 5 to 10% of the children or young adults given the vaccine actually didn't um, respond to it effectively with just one shot. Therefore, the second shot was guaranteed to cover everybody. And given the infectiveness of the measles virus, they very gradually came to the conclusion that you needed 95 to 98 percent population coverage in order to prevent and really control disease outbreaks. Many of us might be under the impression that apathy and hesitancy toward vaccination started after the debunked Wakefield autism claim in 1998. But your article brings us way back to the 1960s. What was happening in the 1960s around measles and its vaccine? Well, in the 1960s, um, Canadian and American researchers, as well as researchers in uh, Europe and uh, Russia, were all working on either killed um, or live attenuated measles vaccines. The upshot of all this is um, that by the early 1960s, some Canadian pediatricians were actually arguing that measles was more dangerous than polio, largely because, you see, polio at that point had been virtually eliminated by the Salk vaccine, and as of 1962, there was, of course, the Sabin oral vaccine. The concern was, and this is something that, that parents and practitioners today don't necessarily recognize, measles killed children, basically, from the dawn of time through to uh, the 1960s and literally up to the present. The outbreak in Western Europe has taken the lives of children, and um, that's one of the reasons that the measles vaccine was viewed with such great enthusiasm when it was first uh, developed in the early 1960s. It was also very much a symbol of modern technology. And it was viewed as another vaccine that potentially, like the smallpox and polio vaccines, might ultimately lead to the eradication of the disease. And um, I would I would add something here. First of all, vaccine hesitancy has always been an issue, actually, since the beginning of vaccination. But I would also say that at that time, in the 1960s, U.S. experts and some Canadian ones as well wanted to sell the eradication of measles. And I would not say at any cost, but it was seen as a cost-effective endeavor. Mothers entering the workforce were spending too much time at home caring for sick children. And complications of the disease, as Heather mentioned, were numerous as well as hospitalization. So measles at a cost, right? And moreover, and as Heather already mentioned as well, the measles vaccine was seen as the height of modern technology. And this U.S experts, including CDC personnel, thought that the eradication of measles worldwide would make them look good. And the WHO at the time was not convinced, though they agreed to smallpox measles eradication campaigns in Africa, for instance, in the second half of the 1960s. And, and we shouldn't forget that the Cold War at the time was a very good time, actually, for vaccine research and production, but also for scientific competition as well. Professor Monet, around that time, and in the couple of decades that followed, there was also a lot happening with new parenting styles, as you mentioned. 
second wave feminism you talk about in your article, acceptance of midwifery groups and alternative medicine into the firmament of medical practice. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in Quebec, for instance, second wave feminism empowered women and mothers who thus developed a certain taste for what we now call complementary and alternative medicine, but first of all, who claimed their right to medical freedom, to their body, and criticized more openly biomedicine and biomedical doctors. Of course, some of them refused the measles vaccines and vaccine in general, but most of them just asked to be educated about the vaccine value, and they asked to have the right to choose for them and their children. As for new parenting styles, uh, the one we're still experiencing now to a certain extent, they unfolded in the 1980s, especially as new threats appeared, including new puzzling health issues, such as allergies and asthma, way before autism, actually, which reinforced the idea that my child is unique and I have to do everything in my power to protect him or her. And sometimes, especially in the case of allergies, I think, this meant refusing vaccination. I might add, um, because women enter the workforce in large numbers, they, they become significantly less deferential to their doctors, but by the same token, as young women become new mothers, they find themselves more and more dependent not on their mothers and grandmothers and uh, advice from, say, the public health nurse, but on looking at parenting guides um, to a degree, it starts with Benjamin Spock, but there's a huge upsurge in parenting guides during the 1970s and the 1980s. There was so much advice, and there was so much pressure on them to be good or perfect mothers. And my own sense is that that's actually just intensified, and that the internet today is a huge source of excessive pressure on young mothers, particularly. Um, although young men are equally pressured in a way that parents in the past weren't. And so for them, uh, and this is, you see, beyond our 1998 cutoff point, for the, the young parents today, vaccination assumes a huge uh, perspective in in their decision-making about these perfect little babies. So, Professor McDougall, what was the uptake of measles vaccine like in the decade or so following its commercialization? Well, during the 1960s, Canadian children received either the killed measles vaccine produced by Connaught Laboratories uh, and added to the uh, diphtheria pertussis and tetanus or the diphtheria pertussis, tetanus and polio vaccines already in use. Um, and although that was um, very much following Connaught's approach to creating new killed vaccines, some Ontario cities, specifically Hamilton and London, decided instead to purchase the live attenuated vaccines produced in the United States. Both those cities used mass campaigns to quell uh, epidemics. 
and generally refused to offer the killed vaccine, even though the killed vaccine was what the Ontario government was providing um, to public health units and to family practitioners. But interestingly enough, in the 1960s, both the killed and the live attenuated produced significant side effects. But studies conducted by Connaught across the country demonstrated, however, that their killed vaccine produced many fewer antibodies than um, the results of the experiments in the United States were suggesting the live attenuated produced. The result of all this is that the newly created National Advisory Committee on Immunization would not recommend any further research or production of killed vaccines as of 1968. So, after that point, Canadian parents generally were offered two measles vaccines, Rubiovax for red measles and Sendabax for rubella, which is German measles, a lesser um, challenge uh, for children, but a significant issue for pregnant women. Um, and both those vaccines were generally viewed as part of childhood immunization. But with the introduction of the MMR vaccine in 1972, most provinces began to shift to its use rather than the individual uh, monovalent vaccines or combinations of the measles and the rubella vaccines, largely because MMR offered all three together in one shot. The uptake, however, remained rather sporadic because in most um, situations, there were not specific schedules for the administration of the vaccine at either the national or the provincial levels. And this created confusion specifically for family practitioners and for families whenever they moved from province to province. In your article, you say that doctors were alerted early to these low vaccine rates, uh, yet they struggled uh, to make a difference. Why was that? This is where, as historians, our knowledge of Canadian political and social history really comes into play. Because in the 1970s, most of the pro all of the provinces actually joined the federal Medicare system. And what the consequence of that was, was a rapidly increasing workload for family physicians. In the past, when of course they had dealt with um, the private medical insurance plans or billed their patients directly, um, they had had reasonable sized practices. But once Medicare became the um, dominant form of medical practice across the country, their patient load skyrocketed. And our suspicion is that childhood immunization became significantly more difficult for them, just given the large number of patients that they were dealing with, but also in conjunction with second wave feminism, as more and more women enter the workforce, they are less and less able to come to office hours between 8.30 and 4.30, 9 and 5. And so as a result of all of this, there's an implementation and recall issue. But on top of all of this, given that all of these vaccines are emerging in the 1970s, the doctors need more direction regarding correct storage temperatures. And 
effective reconstitution methods because the measles vaccine arrived in um, freeze-dried form and needed to be reconstituted and put into the needle. This created problems because, of course, they were dependent on information both from the manufacturer and from the provincial health ministry, um, as well as, I mentioned earlier, the uh, controversy or confusion over whether what the appropriate age of administration was. And many doctors had, in fact, been administering the vaccine when the child arrived for its well-baby assessment, but it was learned fairly early on that if you gave the measles vaccine or MMR before the age of 12 months, that didn't work terribly well because there were still maternal antibodies that could neutralize the vaccine virus. The other problem, of course, is that if the vaccine was not stored properly and reconstituted effectively, you were administering an inert rather than an active vaccine. So it's a combination of the context in which all of this is emerging for specific uh, family practitioners and pediatricians and a certain level of lack of information from senior government uh, officials about the requirements for effective storage and use of the vaccine. So it was both a question of accessibility and knowledge. And uh, I think uh, that's something we wanted to point out in the, in, the, in the paper as well, that getting the right information and information about the measles vaccine, you know, um, changed like rapidly. And it was extremely difficult actually to, to know what to do with the, the vaccines in the 1970s or 80s. So that, that was a, an important issue and probably had consequences on, on rates of immunization, not vaccination, but immunization rates. So while our colleagues could actually have used some good support at the time, there actually was not a concerted national effort to regulate vaccine schedules and the cost of vaccination in Canada. What was happening at the provincial, territorial, and federal government levels? This is a particularly crucial period for federal-provincial relations on a variety of different levels. But the 1970s and the 1980s were extremely difficult decades for traditional public health services, specifically things like immunization. And the reason for this is that the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act and the Medical Care uh, Act of 1968, or 66 rather, both supported hospital-based curative care and curative services provided by um, family physicians and specialists. The shift from a focus on public health and prevention that had, in fact, dominated most provincial ministries of health up until the adoption of Medicare meant that public health and prevention were significantly downgraded within the provincial bureaucracies. And one of the consequences of that was much less attention to um, immunization much less attention to maintaining um, effective relationships between public health unit uh, medical officers and local uh, physicians, and therefore um, a lack of 
constructive dialogue and communication between those two groups of people who were doing rather different tasks, but all focused, one would have thought, on the health of their populations. Equally important at the federal level, because the federal government um, recognized the huge cost associated with support for hospitals and medical care services, they began to look for ways to cut back on those costs, the most crucial of which turned out to be the shift to health promotion through individual behavior modification that was so clearly outlined in the Lalonde Report, which appeared in 1974. By shifting from the collective approach that had dominated public health and disease prevention up to that point, and which was the foundation for the encouragement that parents received to immunize their children for the sake of community health, the move to behavior modification, lifestyle diseases, and individual health responsibility put us on the road to the situation in which we find ourselves today, where it is extraordinarily difficult to persuade concerned parents that they should, in fact, immunize their child, not just for that child's welfare, but also for the welfare of the immunocompromised and society at large. So this is the decade where the turnaround begins and in conjunction with the changing parenting styles of the period, we start to realize that um, immunization as a policy and as a practice is coming under significant public questioning. In your article, you brought to light other failures as well those of the government to be sure, but also medical school education. Have we learned from this any of this history? Well, we're very hopeful that our article, um, which is part of a larger study, will create questions um, in people's minds about the history of vaccine policy uh, in Canada, and that it will lead to some understanding that it's more complex than simply manufacturing and administering vaccines. The lessons of history um, seem to us to, to be learned at a rather slow rate of progress. It took many, many years of pressure for the federal government to finally uh, establish a national immunization strategy in 2003, But unfortunately, it hasn't subsequently provided uh, consistent funding or leadership in spite of the best efforts of the Public Health Agency of Canada and the biennial Canadian immunization conferences. Several of the provinces, British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario, have created provincial groups that conduct very um, important scientific and qualitative research into new and existing vaccines and the public response to them. And they are the generally the groups that are particularly engaged in assessing the causes of vaccine hesitancy and endeavoring to find ways to build vaccine resilience. The 
addition of a module on um, immunization to all the residency pro training programs in the country should ensure that medical students are better prepared than uh, their predecessors. But the real problem, I think, is that current healthcare professionals have probably never seen um, an actual case of measles unless they trained overseas. And as very much products of current society, they are often very leery of immunizing themselves or their children. And this is one of the really striking changes that our history is going to demonstrate between the 1960s uh, and the present, in that um, healthcare professionals in a variety of different fields often have as many questions about the necessity for and the effectiveness of uh, immunizations as the people whose work on the internet is uh, so pivotal in shaking the confidence of much of the public in the advice provided by healthcare professionals. Professor Manet, what is your perspective on, on why you wrote this paper and where do you see ourselves going from here? I think uh, yeah, there are many answers to that question, but uh, I think one of the reasons we wanted to write this article was um, because we thought it would be a way to engage with our healthcare professionals, especially doctors, and the idea was to tell them that, is, first of all, it has always been a complex issue. Uh, second of all, that non-vaccination and anti-vaccination are not synonymous. You know, there are issues of accessibility, knowledge that are extremely important to look at and unfold. And also, I think we wanted to um, to share the idea that vaccine behaviors are a multifactorial reality. And maybe also, um, we wanted to show that history, uh, which is an evidence-based discipline, to quote uh, public health historian Virginia Burridge, um, allows us to insist on the value of context, locality, and longitudinality to better grasp and understand uh, vaccination and anti-vaccination uh, behaviors. Professor McDougall, any final comments? I would just agree entirely with what Laurence has just said. I also think that by looking at the deeper social, cultural, and political roots um, of current issues in, in vaccination policy, we're hoping that the people who read the article and the people who listen to the podcast will feel able to talk to each other about the issues that are of deepest concern to them. Because many of the studies that, that are currently underway demonstrate that the public still has very deep regard and trust in their own individual practitioners and are looking for guidance. But guidance from the standpoint of equals and that is, I think, probably the big challenge that is facing um, doctor-patient relations at the moment, and that it is complicated when patients arrive in with reams of material drawn off internet sites, which challenge the medical uh, consensus on the efficacy and effectiveness of immunizing 
children. Um, the other thing that, that we really did not get into was the terminal date. And we specifically chose 1998 as our terminal date because we wanted to make it clear that the Wakefield article is more of a catalyst, it's almost icing on the cake, to an emerging expression of public concern about the necessity for uh, immunization. It also coincides with something that we didn't say that much about, which is the rising environmental movement all the way from the 1960s through to, of course, the present, um, where the emphasis on everything natural made vaccines seem unnatural. So those are my um, additional thoughts. Colleagues, I thank you for your uh, interesting paper and this enlightening discussion. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having us. I've been speaking with Professor Heather McDougall, Associate Professor of History at the University of Waterloo, and Professor Laurence Monet, Professor of History at the University of Montreal. To read the Humanities article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you are there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Thank you.